This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday Lunch Show with me, Samuel Lickers, here on Teachers Talk Radio. Today I am excited to have two super experienced teachers on as guests to discuss all things SEN and SEMH. Today we have questions from teachers about the things they are finding challenging when supporting their neurodiverse students in the classroom. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Today I'd like to welcome SJ Shepherd, whom I worked with at an SEMH school, and Elizabeth Lickis, who heads up post-exing education for a group of SEND schools. Both of them have loads and loads of experience working with children and young people with a diverse range of educational needs. Um, SJ, it's really uh, great to have you on the show. Um, how's your week been? Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Can you hear me okay? Oh, loud and clear. Um, yeah. Uh, it's all go in the world of SEMH as always. Um, but yeah, it's been a good week and we're enjoying the build up to Christmas. Thank you. Yeah. Is your school doing anything sort of special for Christmas? Um, well, we are for the primary children having a visit from a very special visitor in a traditional red suit at some point. And for the older students, they work towards a behavior award trips so we are having a week of going out and enjoying ourselves so i hope you're having a fun build up to christmas too uh, yeah we're, we're doing lots and lots of bits of bob's carol services all that sort of thing we i don't think we've got a visit from santa though that's uh, something we're definitely missing out on um so sj first of all because uh, i know you got to leave a bit earlier today so um perhaps first of all we could just say what semh is and what sort of things that encompasses uh, well, uh, the school that I'm working in is social, emotional and mental health needs. Now, <clears throat> this can have a variety of uh, students in our school. Um, they may um, have special SEND needs as well. Um, but basically, it's those children who've um, faced adverse childhood experiences. And in a sense, they're in a state of um, learning how to cope with their lives, regulating themselves so that they can interact socially and also, you know, cope with any educational pressures we might put on them. Um, so it's all a bit confused and tricky for them. Um, but, you know, that's the challenge of the job, I think. We enjoy just bringing on young people and seeing the best in them. Um, and so I love my job. I'm one of the lucky people in life. Yeah, so we've just, um, Elizabeth's just called in as well. She's um, head of post-exing education, as I said, at a, um, a variety of schools, a group of schools up in London. So just a question for both of you. Why did you choose to go into SEMH and SEN education rather than a mainstream setting? Well, from my point of view, I started off in mainstream, loved it. I mean, really enjoyed it. In fact, before that, I was in media and radio. Um, and I sort of came into teaching via the BBC School Report system, where I found myself working with a load of different youngsters 
um, in different schools, helping them to become reporters and, you know, get involved in the media. And during that process, I really enjoyed, I found myself really enjoying uh, working with young people in particular, but particularly those youngsters that perhaps are disengaged from mainstream education. I had a mixture in the schools that I was teaching. Um, some of the head girl and head boy came along and did did their bit um, on the radio. But there are also some youngsters that had decided they weren't going to do literacy, they weren't going to get involved in um, traditional mainstream subjects. And I found that some of those youngsters through arts really became absolutely inspired. And looking into their backgrounds, I found out that quite often they had EHCPs, that they were in mainstream education, but they really weren't engaging for a variety of reasons. And that's why I decided to investigate further, because some of the best uh, productions that I got, some of the best input I got, were from some of those youngsters, not necessarily traditionally the high achievers. Um, and it was through through that process of working for BBC School Report that not only did I go into teaching, but I also started looking at young people with EHCPs and additional needs. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, that's a very similar uh, passion behind my introduction into SEMH, I think, that I was in mainstream too. And yet it was those youngsters who are falling through the gaps and slipping through that net and disengaged and stuff. And I think personally, I think our education system needs a lot of tweaking. Um, and I think that it's very much you need to do things in a certain way, behave in a certain manner. And actually, we cut out all the kind of other types of intelligences and creativity that there are, because we want everyone to be and learn in a certain way. And I just think the world is much more, more than that. And I want to be creative in the way that I explore education and relationships and children and um, help them. And I guess, uh, my passion for thinking outside the box. I want to sort of enable children to realize that they can do that too, because our system is quite regimented at the moment, I feel. And I, I, I guess I feel I can't complain about a system unless I'm in it to change it. So I was in teaching. I then had my own business while I had my own offspring. And then when I went back into teaching, I was more determined than ever to make a difference I think and make people believe in themselves and I truly believe it's um, possible to achieve great things you know and I just wanted to help and enable children to do that. Mm. And I think when you look at um, I've been working with uh, young people with additional needs for quite a long time now um, the, when I look at some of the what they have managed to achieve I've got young people at the Royal School of Music I've got young people who my mechanic is is the person who repairs my car, was one of my ex-students. Um, I'm build, building up quite a dossier of students who have been really very successful in their everyday lives. And they're coming back now into the company I work uh, to share their experiences. And these were young people that were written off by the system. I don't want any young person to be written off by the system. I want us to find creative ways, both in mainstream and in our special educational needs schools to support them to become the successful leaders. I, I know they can. I've seen them. Yeah, totally. I, I feel the passion from you too. 
both of you have mentioned creativity as being something that's been really sort of key um, to your interest in working with uh, children and young people with special education needs, and that's that really comes across strongly. And it's it's really fantastic to hear because, as you say, SJ, mainstream can be really quite regimented, and certainly um, that there are sometimes good reasons for that, perhaps. But having that sort of flexibility and freedom is, and um, being able to think outside the box, perhaps a little bit more in an alternative setting is something I really liked about my experience working in in that sort of setting. Yeah, for me, I think that um, you can still be creative in the mainstream as well. Uh, For me, controversially, I believe that's what makes a good teacher, that you have the constraints, but you're not constrained by them. um, And that you still need to think outside the box, even with those measures in place. Um, And so I do believe we still need to be creative in the mainstream. And actually, I I think it's just that's what makes an exceptional teacher, those people who live within the rules, but bend them slightly. And, and I think that's what makes an exceptional SLT too, is, is a is a SLT that recognises that there has to be some uh, conformity um, within the system, especially if it's in mainstream, but actually celebrate uh, those teachers and allow those teachers with creativity and who want to think out of the box. It may not just be through creativity, it might be through sports, it might through be through a million different ways, but celebrating and encouraging um teachers to, to to be to be a little bit edgy in the way they um produce and support young people in their classes whether they have ehcps or not because i think all young people can benefit from that brilliant so oh sorry sj off you <laughs> no i was going to say for sure yeah so i i asked some teachers I asked around teachers and some of the questions that they had about working with students with these a really wide variety of special needs. So I just wanted to invite um, a question that came in from Erin about, and I thought it was good, probably something that's really interesting because this is in a mainstream setting about one of the challenges that she's been facing with one of her SEN students. I'd just be interested to hear your answers to that. So I have an SEND pupil in my classroom and they look like they are... Um, really disengaged um, when we're doing formative assessment they're not holding up whiteboards however when I go over and ask them the answers they have it straight away and one of their main triggers is writing so I would like to know how best how best to support this pupil because they won't write anything down in their books it's mainly my handwriting and what they verbalize to me what the answers are and I don't feel this is sustainable for the rest of the classroom However, for them, it really works. So, so a tricky I'd one. probably like to know Oops. how best I can support this student. I've put um, handcuff sheets in place. I've, been, I've printed out sheets where mainly they have to fill in one or two words, but it just doesn't work. So I would like to know how best I can support this pupil if their main trigger is writing, but they know all the answers. So a student who knows the answers, but doesn't like to write any of them down. How would you deal with that? Uh, With difficulty, it's Mm. will be said. I mean, that's a really tricky one. If you have no extra adult support in the classroom, um, and so the student doesn't have the ability to have a scribe or anything, it is really tricky. I mean, they're obviously in that zone of fear of like writing for whatever reason. You know, do they have, 
So in our school, although you might have social emotional um, difficulties, you might actually not have an educational need, um, whereas other children might actually be diagnosed with uh, dyslexia. So the variety of ways that I've used in the past um, are whiteboards, like you say, because often they tend to be less permanent. So they're willing to make more mistakes because they're not instant they can instantly wipe off and whatever and then I've given them repeated whiteboards so I can photocopy them during um, a session afterwards so then they're not always having to wipe it off but that's you're saying that actually that child doesn't like to even write on a whiteboard so is it because they're not wanting to hold the whiteboard up in front of their peers so Mm -hmm. could there be a system of them writing it down and keeping it on their desk for you in a sort of numbered box. Um, There are, depending on the age of the child, there are recording devices that you could use um, so that they might, so a multi-memo voice recorder records up to about uh, six minutes or something. I don't know. So could they record a passage of writing and it would unfortunately mean more pressure for somebody to then have to scribe it afterwards. but it is that's a really impossible task on a daily basis. Sounds like you're differentiating already by doing closed questionnaires and having less writing for them. So I guess it would be finding out if they have a diagnosis, what they think would help them. I mean, is it the fact of visual glare? Do they not actually like black on white? Um, and really talking to the student and finding out what their fear is of this moment. And I'd try and move on from there I don't know what other views you have on that I think that it, I mean obviously it's it's important to know the child really well because it's it, it's it could be a myriad of different issues that mm-hmm. uh, he or she has with writing um, so for starters I would ask myself is there any other um, lesson in which this young person is engaging in writing even a small amount because because sometimes it may not be because that teacher's not a good teacher, but it may be that they aren't using a technique that another teacher might be doing. And I, I do find in a lot of schools that sometimes the, and I don't want to sound patronising, but the obvious of getting together, team around the child, asking the question, are we all having the same issues? If we're not, there may be some techniques that somebody's used or perhaps they've got a particular relationship that has allowed this child to have more confidence in writing so that that would be the first point the second point is does this young person use a pencil um are they can they engage in art i.e are they having a physical issue with holding a pencil and being able to manipulate writing it sounds it sounds crazy to say this but actually writing if you talk to an occupational therapist i'm not an occupational therapist but i've worked with enough of them to pick up quite a lot of information writing is a it it requires an awful lot of um very fine motor skills if this young person is struggling with those fine motor skills then the whole ordeal of writing uh and of course the anxiety that that produces builds up and we now might have a young person who can write but because the speed at which they have to write um, and the process of writing has become so stressful to them, they've now shut down. So good idea would be to have a look and see if we have a motor skill problem. Do they write at home? 
Do yeah. they write birthday cards and things at home? So first of all, we've got to rule out whether this young person has a motor skill issue because there's lots of physical things that you can use like pencil grips and things that may help with that. I think the teacher concerned is doing a fab job in in trying to get round the issue to uh, hear the young person's answers because there's nothing worse than sitting there in the the classroom knowing the answers, not being able to express yourself through the means that the teacher's asking you to do, it just uh, then hits your self-esteem even further. Yeah. Obviously, and we have the a lot of... might be able to help with that as well. Sorry, Sorry I we, we have a lot of children that use iPads with a keyboard or mm -hmm. a laptop in our classrooms. And Absolutely. that makes a marked difference. You know, one of the students mm -hmm. in my classes um, is great verbally, but when he writes, it's incoherent, it's illegible. Mm. Um, but it's whether the school have the capacity to do that and stuff. And I think this teacher obviously sounds like, um, like you say, they're really conscientious because A, they have posted this question. B, they're working really hard to find out what works for this child. And so I think they've got the determination and push to, to go for something more like having alternative means of recording. At the oh, end you. of the day... I don't know about you, but how much handwriting do you do in your everyday life? I know we want them to be able to handwrite, and it is important. We do have a necessity to be able to handwrite. But if we can use gadgets like laptops and what have you, obviously, I mean, there's access arrangements for things like GCSEs and what have you, where those can be used. I think it's important to, whilst we're trying to work with this young person as to what has cause them to shut down from writing, that we keep the dialogue open so that they their self-esteem doesn't get damaged still further, and perhaps being able to express their ideas, perhaps on in some lessons where writing is quite intensive, there's a lot of writing, uh, using a laptop or actually um, expressing themselves, as you said, through um, a, a verbal means, perhaps voice-activated software. And I know all these things are quite sophisticated, but... If it's going to help this child's self-esteem, what I end up with is a lot of young people who failed in mainstream school, not because they're not academically able, but because their self-esteem has been damaged to such an extent that they're just, they've just given up. So this teacher is doing a marvellous job in keeping that young person's self-esteem, hearing his answers, hearing her answers, um, and developing them. But obviously there's a bigger picture here that needs to be investigated. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that that's where your Senko comes in. Thank you. Yeah, look, both really good answers. It, you know, talking to the Senko, finding out what the sort of root cause analysis really isn't it? What What is <laughs> the, the main barrier to it? Perhaps their technology could be a really useful thing, whether it's through dictation software or um, through typing up on a, an iPad or a laptop or whatever. So yeah, the, lots of good suggestions there. And, and absolutely, I think... A lot of teachers do work really hard to go and go that extra mile to differentiate, to um, try and incorporate them into the lessons. But as she said in that question, you know, often this is not sustainable if you're producing dozens of different worksheets mm. just for students. And, you know, even then it's not quite working out. So absolutely. So, yes, Senko, seeing what other teachers are doing, maybe see encouraging perhaps um, incorporating some more technology to help that student out. An assessment to see whether they've got the physicality, whether it's a mm. physical issue or whether it's a physical yeah. issue 
I mean, at all, a trauma issue. I can remember one learner in my mainstream school, exactly the same. After a, a, a lot of investigation, and, and sometimes it was a question of um, practicing their handwriting outside the classroom where they weren't on show, to, so, show to, so to speak. After developing a relationship with them, they confessed that what the problem was, was it went back all the way through to about when they were about six or seven years old. They wrote something on a whiteboard, you know, when, and they showed it to the class like everybody else was doing. And whilst nobody would else would see this as traumatic, for them it was. And it was that they, they'd written on the board something, they'd misspelt it, and obviously the, the word was not what they were expecting, and they'd made a rude word, which, of course, everybody laughed at. The teacher didn't laugh. The teacher said, I think you need to check your spelling. But obviously they were so traumatised by that event. After that, that was it. No, no, I'm not putting any pen on paper because mm. that makes me vulnerable. And it was unpicking that that actually managed to get that young person back on task, back on writing again. But it was something as simple as that when they were quite young and they were 11 by the time I got hold of them. So for since about the age of six or seven to 11, they had refused to write because of that one incident. Mm. Yeah, and I would argue that actually investing time into exploring the reasons why yeah. but also investing monetary things into alternative means like dictation um technology and stuff like that we're not talking loan cases no. <laughs> so it will always be useful in the future for a school or a, an educational environment so i would always think <laughs> you never just get one pupil like that no, there are always no. more i would imagine that this is a really good question for a lot of uh uh, teachers listening in because I, I, there, there'll be one or two in every school. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm conscious of time and I wanted, um, I think this would be a qu- good question next to come up for, for SJ in particular because I know this is something you do a lot in your school um, about trips going out into the community. Hi, Sam. <laughs> How do you deal with uh, SEN students feeling dysregulated uh, and displaying challenging behaviours when you're taking them on trips and visits to, you know, new um, and unfamiliar places. So taking students out of school, perhaps uh, whether it's sports lessons or uh, going on a yeah. trip into a museum or something like that, when you've got students who are dysregulated and perhaps there's causing some safeguarding issues. Yeah, so of course you need to do a risk assessment of that student first and you need to actually assess whether they're capable of leaving the premises, going somewhere new, um, that they haven't been there before. Um, It often means having a plan, uh, having extra adult support, um, you know, thinking through what could go wrong on that day. So from that, I would then massively talk to that student about, the day you know now we have the joy of websites and stuff you can talk about where you're going um whatever their particular issue is about being outside um you can talk that through with them and um usually we find with our students actually as bolshie as they might be on the school premises we tend to find that when they get out into the real world um beyond the gates of school that they act quite differently um 
luckily for for us the students are much more regulated and quieter because they feel less confident in a foreign environment so they um i've always had fantastic school trips and i definitely would say don't let it deter you but it's thinking of the what ifs isn't it it's thinking of all those things that might happen that you need to then put a plan a b c x y and z in for um so never worry about over planning and being over precautious because it doesn't matter if you have a plan and never use it but what you don't want to do is go without that plan um and i would say it's talking to that student and knowing them really well because for me i think the educational thing for me is it's all about the relationship and you've just got to really know your students and know what might be a trigger uh, what could be a possible trigger and ones you haven't even thought of yet. Um, and so I would be doing all those to plan and do it in advance for, you know, you know, it's really horrible and most schools don't sort of do trips last minute. So make sure you use your time well to not be faffing at the last minute going, oh, I haven't done this or whatever. Um, give yourself a chance to really think it through. I really like that you said don't let it deter you and I think these these are such important experiences aren't they for so many young people to get out into the community to experience different things say so many of these students don't get that those opportunities often because they're sort of cloistered in these um in, in their school environment or their home environment and having that sort of extra cultural capital is so valuable for them so yeah thank you um Elizabeth anything you wanted to add to that well, I think I think you've covered an awful lot of the areas there, and that I would I, I would do as well. I think there's an awfully um, there's a there's a big place for parents in this well and carers, because you've got a trip coming up and social stories, um, having a look at, at where you're going and doing your background research and allowing the child to see where they're going and what they will be doing but you can write that out in a sort of story form which is called a social story which can go home um, so that the parent can read uh, with the child or go through the itinerary with the child um, because sometimes it takes longer than just a quick look uh, sometimes these young people need to process and it takes time to process longer than perhaps we expect them to do and if you involve the parents in in having a look at, I don't know what the trip might be to the museum or what have you, and have a drip drip feed in the days leading up to the school trip, I think that that often helps a lot. And I don't know whether what this uh, supposed child might, um, what their problem might be, but if they're on the autistic spectrum, they quite often like the trip broken down for them. So a sort of now and next board. So. So now we'll be doing this. Next, we're going to be doing this. So they know where they are on the trip and what uh, what time, what time's lunch? What time is the break? What time are we getting back to school? Because these can produce quite a lot of anxieties uh, amongst some of our, our young people if they're going out on a trip. Is, you know, is the trip going to end? Am I going to come back to school? What time will I get back to school? Will I catch the bus in time? Will I get home to... Um, I don't know, to, 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 to see my mum at a particular time. So having that in a now and next or a, a scheduled situation can, can help a lot. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I think, I think both, both of you have said the similar sort of things there about talking through the day. If you've got a website for the place you're going to visit, 
you know, what's the route we're going to take? What time are we going to do X, Y, and Z activities? Really, um, yeah, really fantastic. And, and yeah, don't let it deter you. No, um, no, I, I think the our, our young people get huge amounts of benefits from trips. That's neurotypical and uh, our young people with the HCPs, you know, don't, don't, don't let it deter you, but just have those, um, know your child. And as your other speaker said, know what triggers. If you think that they can only cope with half a day of the trip or half the trip, then perhaps it'll be possible to have uh, a sort of um, uh, some sort of contingency plan where that child could go back halfway through the trip if they, they they can't manage the whole the whole event. And you can get that you can get parents involved in that sort of process. But uh, yes, don't leave them out if you can help it. Um, but just do your homework. Absolutely. Um, SJ, I know you needed to leave early today. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Um, really appreciate you having your sort of input and sharing your expertise. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's delightful to be on. And um, yeah, hopefully you'll ask me back in the future. I'd love to have you back on at some point. Um, thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break now while we hear from our sponsors and the news. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as Tech User Labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. School summer holidays are often a hot topic, but they made the news again in The Guardian as leaders in Wales appear to be considering changes. According to reports, Wales's minority Labour administration 
wants to shrink summer breaks from six weeks to five and eventually reduce it to four weeks. The plan would see the time added to half-term breaks in October and May. The proposal would equalise the length of terms and break the connection with Easter by fixing the timing of the spring break regardless of when the religious festival falls. The newspaper says the plans follow research by the government which suggests that parents struggle to organise and pay for childcare over the summer. Plaid Cymru, which supports the proposal, said in a statement that the current calendar was outdated as it was designed a long time ago and that some families find the summer break very long and impacting negatively on their well-being. However, the article also points out that evidence of the harm to learning from school holidays is unclear, as much of the evidence comes from the United States, where summer holidays can be up to 12 weeks long rather than the six to seven weeks in the UK. John Hattie, Professor of Education at the University of Melbourne, said the effects from school holidays are very small and there is little reason to believe that the length of the school year has much effect at all. A study from 2019 that looked at pupils from primary schools in an area of high deprivation in Scotland and England found no effect on reading skills. In Northern Ireland, schools typically have eight weeks off in the summer, but generally have results in exams that are better than those in England or Wales. However, a 2022 study did find evidence of worsening mental health in some age groups over long summer breaks. Surveys done in Wales found 60% of parents said they were quite happy with the school year as it is. In 2013, then Education Secretary Michael Gove gave schools in England the power to choose the timing of holidays, but most schools kept the six weeks. The BBC News website reports on the Beyond Ofsted inquiry. The inquiry is chaired by former schools minister Lord Knight and is funded by the National Education Union. The report from the inquiry recommends that schools should instead be responsible for their own improvement plans. Ofsted has responded by repeating its previous statement that inspections are needed to ensure a high quality education. The inquiry said that Ofsted was now seen by many as toxic and not fit for purpose, and in need of major reform. The removal of single word judgments was also recommended, and this echoed another report on school improvement released earlier by the Institute for Public Policy Research, which also called for narrative-style judgments rather than single words. The Beyond Ofsted inquiry recommended stopping Ofsted from having direct contact with schools, and instead schools should draw up their own improvement plans, which would make them accountable to parents and the wider local community. Lord Knight, speaking to the BBC, said Ofsted created a culture of fear in our schools. His report also said that Ofsted had become under-resourced for the high-stakes job expected of it. A spokesperson for Ofsted said nine out of ten schools say inspections helped them to improve. In related news, the current Chief Inspector of Schools, Amanda Spielman, has written in her final annual report about parents being increasingly willing to challenge school rules in England. She described the unwritten contract between home and school as fractured and that it will take time to repair. The report is broadly positive but draws attention to a shift in behaviour, attendance and attitudes to education since the pandemic, describing it as leaving a troublesome legacy. 
Full details of her comments can be found across media outlets. Teach First has celebrated its 20th anniversary, with three former Prime Ministers praising the charity's work in tackling education inequalities. According to Teach First's own website newsfeed, the charity has recruited more than 16,000 teachers to work in disadvantaged areas across England. Teach First CEO Russell Horby reaffirmed the charity's mission to help Britain's most disadvantaged children to achieve their full potential. Finally, student immigration data has been released, with Home Secretary James Cleverley stating the biggest drivers of immigration to the UK are students and healthcare workers. He further commented that this was testament to our world-leading university sector. According to data, Indian nationals account for over one quarter of all sponsored study grants, followed by Chinese nationals. The education sector relies heavily on students applying to UK universities for significant funding. But there is also political pressure to reduce net immigration. Any plans to make changes to the current system will be monitored carefully. Although for now, the focus remains on illegal migration rather than legal routes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we're talking about SEMH, social, emotional and mental health education and SEND education to those students with special educational needs. How can we support them in our classroom environment? Just before the break, I was talking to SJ Shepherd, who's somebody I worked with at an SEMH specialist school, um, sharing her expertise. And we've got Elizabeth Lickis on still now, who's going to who's heads up post-exine services at a group of um, SEND schools in London. So, Elizabeth, we were just hearing there on the news just now about um, some of the challenges that a lot of students face with their home environments, particularly since the pandemic. There have been some quite public stories about um, students who basically, or children who've been left behind uh, during the pandemic where they were isolated and where social services couldn't have easy access to them. And it's clearly had a really big impact upon um, things like behaviour and and mental health with a lot of students within our schools. What would be your is is that your feeling too? Is this something you've noticed in your experience? Yes, and I think that it's um, this, this isn't just uh, send students or students with uh, special educational needs in any way. Um, we're seeing that across um, the board with all students. Um, I've got friends who have uh, perfectly. Um, uh, they, the young people were doing very well at school. They were um, integrated into school. But since um, we've had the COVID and they were isolated at home, uh, they have found it very, very difficult to reintegrate back into uh, the school community. And in, indeed, their mental health has deteriorated quite markedly. In fact, actually, I would say some of the students in our SEN schools have fared better than some of our students in mainstream because, of course, throughout the pandemic uh, SEND schools were generally speaking open. Um, I worked throughout the pandemic it, there was a sort of no change although we had obviously some really tricky situations with staffing and what have you and there were times when we had to close because um, the virus was um, rampant but in general our SEND students in special educational needs settings were in school 
whereas it's those young people who are in mainstream, um, some of whom may have um, send issues, but you know our, our mainstream youngsters have really been affected by um, uh, by COVID, and I think that it's going to take us a long time to get um, get them back on board. And I think we're going to have to think very much more creatively and much more imaginatively about how we approach education for those young people. Thank you. Yeah, well, well this this ties in really nicely with my next question that I've got, which was sent in um, from somebody who's, and I think this is probably not an atypical situation. So let's just hear from Jasmine. Hi, Sam. Um, I've got a student in my class who has got a lot going on at home. Um, I know there are outside agencies involved and as a result they're really struggling with being at school and engaging in school. Um, I guess my question is how would you help support a student who has a lot going on outside of just their education and getting them to engage? So I mean, it's a big issue isn't it oh, there? Yes, um, it how if if, if uh, your main concern is where am I going to be eating tonight or where am I going to be sleeping tonight even why would you care about what your maths teacher's got to say about fractions yes we quite often talk about the bottom of the ziggurat uh, which is the pyramid of need and if your bottom the bottom of the ziggurat your your basic needs are not being met you don't feel safe you don't feel um, assured about you know where the next meal's coming from, then obviously those other those other things on the ziggurat where you're having to deal with education and uh, you know getting the best mass result seems uh, seems to be an impossible uh, task for that young person to climb. <clears throat> I think, and I think we also uh, you know battling against a uh, system that's overloaded in terms of um, those extra support mechanisms. Uh, CAMs, et cetera, et cetera, are uh, overwhelmed. So I think we have to deal with the realities of the issues um, as teachers, and we're dealing with those on an everyday basis. And it's not just the child, it's the whole family maybe under pressure. <clears throat> I think from a child's point of view, one of the things you can do is set up a very good mentoring system within your school. So it may not be your class teacher, it may not be your tutor, but somebody that the young person can come alongside and have regular check-ins throughout the day. How are they feeling? On emotionally, it, we call it in, main, in, in special schools, an emotional check-in. But I think that's very useful to do in a mainstream setting as well, especially for, with youngsters who are under a lot of pressure. It's, it's quite simple, it's quite, can be quite visual or it can just be a verbal check-in but to have a regular person that just checks in with that young person throughout the day how are you feeling what um how can we how can we support you from feeling depressed maybe that's where the youngster is at the moment into feeling better about uh, what's happening next in the next couple of hours so looking at the day and and breaking it down into bite-sized chunks okay you've come in and you're very anxious because this happened last night. That's an emotional check-in. Give the young person time to process what happened last night. And if there's safeguarding issues, obviously, then you would have to um, implement your safeguarding pol policy. But quite often, it just means that the young person needs to talk about things with a trusted adult. They are not ready to necessarily go straight into 
um, a classroom into a formal setting for learning because they need to be able to process what has happened to them over the previous evening or what might be happening when they get home this uh, home tonight so i think having you have to pick your child and and know your children and know which ones you're dealing with but with this particular youngster that has been um obviously is is there's an anxiety around because there's obviously a lot going at home. I think the emotional check-ins with a trusted adult and not being so concerned about that young person um, turning up at X time and staying for the whole hour for that lesson, they may need a little bit of flexibility of approach there. You may need to give them a a, a get-out-of-classroom card. Um, emotional check-ins. These, these are all really good. And and um, I think they're really important. But one mm. one of the things I always sort of worry about with these things is how are the schools supposed? sort of help them within when within that classroom setting at all hello sorry there i um for some reason something happened with my connection there can you hear me yeah yeah all loud and clear sorry could you pass could you uh, say your question again yeah of course um so no it's really it's really important that we have things like emotional check-ins and i think that's really important and having mm -hmm. trusted adults and um, mentoring staff one one of the big challenges then as a as a teacher within the classroom setting is when you've got students like this and you don't necessarily have a support it, um a support in terms of somebody's a trained emotional learning support assistant who is good at that mentoring side of things or whatever but so you've got this student who maybe that just the resourcing isn't there to help them in that way how can a teacher then adapt their lessons to accommodate that need um without that becoming the entire lesson, you've still got the rest of the students in the class to teach as well. I think that is extremely challenging, um, Sam, it really is um, very challenging. I think what you can do is be aware. And I think we are becoming, as teachers, social workers, and um, <clears throat> our, our remit is becoming, always has been huge, but it's now becoming even um, even bigger with the with the credit crunch and everything that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think what we can do as classroom teachers is be aware, be aware of what each young person is going through to continue with the class lesson, because sometimes there's some reassurance in, in that continuity of, of, you know, the rhythm of the school day, but at the same time, allowing ourselves to be available to that young person, if they need to share about, uh, about what they're going through. Be a listener, be open uh, to, to them and be accessible to them. And that's incredibly difficult when you're dealing with about 101 other things as well. But I think uh, if you are, 
then that you'll find that young person is far more willing to um, try and engage with your class because they understand that you're there to try and support them. And I don't think you necessarily need to have massive amount of, um, obviously it'd be wonderful if you've got a huge amounts of training. And I think SLTs in schools need to now start embracing with their CPD offer um, more um, expertise in, in, in helping young people with SEMH and other needs. But going forward, being a listener, being caring and actually showing that you're interested in the young person and that you understand that actually they may be going through an awful lot at the moment, which is not helping when it comes to them producing their homework on time, for example. Now, it has to be done because at the end of the day, these young people need their qualifications and we, we recognise that. But at the same time, it's it's knowing that if a young person is finding it difficult to um, hand in their prep on time because the home situation is such that perhaps it, it, it's been impossible for them to do that, is to see if there's other ways in which you can help that young person to do their work, because they have to do their work, but maybe they could stay a little bit later at school. Is the library open in the evening so that a young person who whose home life is not really compatible with sitting down at a kitchen table because they've got siblings and it's cold, could they perhaps be doing their prep at, at school uh, with support? Is there some sort of voluntary um, support for that? It's about the school body, not just one individual teacher, but the school, bo school body together with SS SLT, getting together and looking at their learners uh, forensically and identifying those learners that need additional support because of what their families are going through and asking themselves, how can we, given that we haven't got a, an awful lot of support from outside, how can we as a, as a body of teachers and professionals support these young people and their families? And there's an awful lot going on um, in our schools. I know schools that are running food banks. I know schools that are definitely running secondhand uniform sales. Um, even schools that have warm areas where um, uh, families can come and young people can do their homework in a, in, in a warm environment and their parents come and supervise their particular children. It's, it's, a, it's a very tricky situation at the moment, but there are just a few ideas that um, I know have been happening in, in schools in my community and further afield. We have really good advice there, and I think yeah, it is it is difficult, and it's, it's some really delicate balances that need striking here. Because mm. I I remember particularly when I worked as a teaching assistant, um, you'd get uh, it was in a primary school in quite a challenging, um, quite a challenging primary school, and some of these students, you know that they've got these EHCPs and they've got really difficult home lives, but they're the ones who are getting themselves into school. It's not their parents who are waking them up in the morning. They're doing it. And so, yeah. yes, they, they've got really scruffy uniform on. They might smell. No, they haven't got their homework or anything like that. But they're in school. And and I think that's definitely where sort of a more relationship-focused um, approach comes into it rather than sort of be, becoming really behaviorist in, in how we deal with it. But, of course, we've got to maintain those high expectations too. And it's, um, yeah. you know, they, they, they at the bottom at end of the day, they, they've got to do their work and they they – and um, so, yeah, having those sort of warm spaces, like you say, a homework club, 
whether it's in the library or something like that, or having snacks available. Because, um, you know, they, they, if they haven't got breakfast, then breakfast your concentration is yeah. going to be rubbish throughout the day. So, it, but it, you're right, though, a lot of these things, it does rely on a whole school approach, doesn't it? It's as an individual teacher, you you can focus on your relationships with that student's being welcoming when they come in, even if they come in late to your tutor group or mm-hmm. something like that, acknowledging that they're there, that you're pleased to have them. Um, it's, yeah, it's, and, um, yeah, it's but also, it is tricky. Know, it, it is tricky because obviously you have other learners in your, in your class and uh, you cannot be allowing one learner to go in and out of your lessons or be seeming to be unfair because as teenagers, everybody needs to be treated fairly. Um, but you may, you may know information about that young person, which means that in certain respects, you have an expectation that uh, is slightly different from other young people, and you've got to keep that balance. Um, I think that also, though, because we're talking about, in some ways, newly qualified teachers, you also need to be aware that you've got to look after yourselves. None of us go into teaching because uh, of the salaries or because... um, You know, we go into teaching because we have a passion to support and to help young people grow and develop and become the young leaders of the future. Um, We want the best for them. And that's absolutely um, our our raison d'etre. But the issue with some teachers and some especially newly qualified teachers is that they can burn themselves out because Mm. there is so much that needs to be done so much um, anxiety around uh, the situations that some young people are having to survive in that you can become so emotionally embroiled with those um, particular issues that it can have a draining effect on you. So do make sure if you're if you're young if you're a teacher just starting off or indeed if you're an old hand like myself, you need to look after your own mental health and your own um, uh, you know, you have to get your work-life balance right because if you don't and you burn out, you're not going to be of any use to anyone. So just a word of caution there. And that's, once again, it's a whole school approach to looking after your colleagues, supporting your colleagues, making sure that um, if you see a colleague who is taking on more and more and more is coming alongside them and watching out for those signs that actually you know, they're pushing themselves too far. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's really important to be empathetic as a teacher, but sometimes you can take on so much of that emotional weight upon yourself. Mm-hmm. And it, it, can re- it, it, is, it is hard work. And actually, we've got to have that separation of church and state, for want of a better phrase, really, to, yeah. um, in, our, in our school and, and personal mm-hmm. lives. Um, so I've got a, another question here that I'd like to share from um, here, which I think is a really pertinent one from uh, Lydia. How do you feel about the push towards removing TAs from classrooms and the knock-on effect that will have on SEN kids? So teaching assistants are pushed to remove them. I used to be a TA. I've been in that position, but for me, it was a bit of a stopgap job before I started my PGCE. But clearly, a lot of schools have a lot of TA vacancies at the moment. What has the impact been on uh, our students? It's a massive It's a massive issue in special schools like the ones that I um I am the pet of post 16 for. Yes, it's, um, I mean, 
we could not do our work within our special needs environment schools without TAs. Um, our TAs are an absolute backbone and invaluable. And having worked in mainstream as well, once again, our TAs, we um, there seems to be a complete underestimation uh, in, in those policies about what the impact of a good TA in a classroom can have, especially if you're dealing with 30-odd children or you know large class sizes. Those TAs offer that individual um, input. A teacher cannot have an individual input into every single child in their class on a regular basis if they've got a large class with a TA, especially for a youngster who, who is struggling. And it may not even be somebody with an EHCP. It may be that a young person is struggling just because they're, 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 they're having difficulty um, conceptualising what the teacher's asking them to do. Having that extra pair of hands, that TA support is, a, is enormous support. And if we don't keep our TAs on board in our... Um, in our classrooms, I think we it's going to be to the detriment of all children, not just the ones with EHCPs, not just the ones with um, SEMH, although that actually is a large number of students, but also to every student. Our TAs are invaluable. Um, yes, you get good ones, and yes, you get not so good ones. When you've got a good TA, by golly, use them wisely and, and value their contribution. And I think every teacher would agree to that. So I, for one, special needs schools cannot survive without um, without TAs. But I would say in mainstream schools too, we need our TA support. Where on earth are we going to get those mentors, those, those people who can come alongside a young person um, and give them that extra little bit of time and that extra boost that they need to be able to process the information that perhaps the other class, the class, rest of the class has taken on quite quickly. Class teachers can't do everything. No, we need to keep our TAs and we need to be very firm about that when it comes to, uh, we need to express that to our unions mm. and uh, via them to our governmental bodies because, you, you know, Reduce the class sizes down to 10 or 12 or 15 children per class. Perhaps we don't need so many TAs. But when we've got class sizes of 25, 30, yes, we do. And even when we've got classes of 15, 16, if we've got somebody who has um, special educational needs, our TAs are invaluable. Yeah, it's... it's, it's um... And I found particularly working in a specialist setting, being a teaching assistant, it is hard work. And I think a lot of people, the school I worked at, and this is um, the same one that SJ currently works at, we were colleagues, um, mm -hmm. you know, this it was hard work. And the TAs that we had were fantastic and really, really fantastic. And, and But they don't get paid very well. And, no, um, mm. and so often there is the attraction of going into other jobs or maybe they're looking at doing teach training themselves and um and of course a lot of them are staying there because they feel a really strong sense of loyalty and mm -hmm. commitment to the students that they work with and we know that that continuity in having a, um, a teaching assistant that they know really well who's often a student's um sort of mentor officially or unofficially it's the person they go to with their their problems um, and, and struggles, that, that continuity is really important. And of course, we run that risk of, of losing that 
if if when they are not supported properly. But yeah, no, there's there's so many job vacancies out there, and and oh, there seems to be a whole lot to fix it. As you say, Sam, it's a tough job. Um, the, the the TAs that um, I have in in my post sixteens and in the schools that the post sixteens are attached to, um, you know, some of them have been working 10, 12 years on the rock face. Um, they are vocational people. They're not. They're definitely not working for the salary. Um, they're there because they want to support the young people, and they have a different relationship to the young people from the teachers. It's a different sort of relationship. But together, it can be a very dynamic um, partnership between teacher and TA to support the learner. And I think that dynamic partnership needs to continue and it needs to be recognised as well. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break now while we hear from our sponsors. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We had a comment here. What does SCMA stand for? I think I think that was um, SEMH, which yeah, uh, stands for social, yeah, social, <laughs> emotional, and mental health. There are so yeah. many acronyms in education; it can be a bit bewildering sometimes, can't no, they? No, it's it's um, it's I'm I'm afraid I'm suffering from a very nasty uh, cold at the moment. Um, um, as I think most teachers will recognise that it's it's a bug fest at the moment in schools, so I'm suffering from that at the moment. So it made it might have come across as um, SEMA. Was it the the, the the person was saying SCMA. Yeah, yeah no, SCMA. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just the cold speaking. Make sure you take your vitamin C's, everybody, and uh, ginger's very good as well. I'm told. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I'd like to take our next question here from um, Hannah. I think this is a really challenging one, and it's a situation I've been in myself. 
Hey Sam, so I currently have um, an extra learning provision class where the majority of the students have quite significant needs um, but they're all completely different ones. One has physical disabilities and is registered blind but they're very academically able um, but then the others have various cognitive disabilities and the rest have behavioural issues. Uh, it's quite tricky to know how to adapt my lesson for all of them at the same time and unfortunately, I don't have a teaching assistant in the class. So an ELPS class or an extra learning provision class within a mainstream setting. Um, often they have smaller classes, which, but they can be such diverse needs in there. So mm. you've got students who's physically um, got issues that need adapting. So maybe that's uh, they need bigger um, worksheets or something like that, or they use their iPads or whatever. Also, students who maybe have some severe cognitive needs or behavioural needs, and you've got to deal with all of them all at once. <laughs> how, how on earth are you supposed to do that? Exactly. How on earth are you supposed to do that? And my um, hats off to, is it Hannah? Um, yes. For, 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 for um, taking on these young people, because it, that, that's an incredibly talent challenging situation. Um, yes, we are professionals and we can differentiate. But there's differentiation and differentiation. I think you um, obviously you need to actually meet their needs in terms of, as you said, uh, might be larger worksheets. There's a lot of practical, straightforward things that you can do. Um, I think your biggest issue probably is the is the young people with the behavioural difficulties, um, because cognitively you can quite easily adapt. Um, we're, we're quite apt at adapting our lesson plans and developing uh, a young person who's cognitively more able and you asking those bigger questions and those more in-depth questions for that youngster. But um, perhaps, uh, you know, um, uh, differentiating in a more simplistic way for, for the others. But then you've got the behavioural issues on top of that. And I think that that's a, that's a whole, whole other ball game because, I mean, I... Behaviour is a way of a young person expressing um, their frustrations with uh, with various. They haven't got the verbal necessarily ability to be able to um, to tell you that they're they're struggling with something, and so it comes out in um, physical aggression or physical or, or, or behavioural issues. But there was also we have to accept, um, you know, young people do. Um, have behavioural issues which aren't linked to anxiety uh, and anxiety driven. Uh, they can be obviously teenagers and they can be uh, uh, as teenagers are, they can get stroppy at times. And so you've got to try and unpack that. Is this young person's behavioural issues because there's an anxiety behind them, which is an EHCP, a diagnosis driven um, issue that I need to understand where they're coming from or is it they've been a teenager they're just been um <clears throat> expressing uh their their that they're being inappropriate in their behavior because and that they're perfectly capable of keeping a lid on it i think what you need to do is go back to the ehcps look at the diagnosis understand what the diagnosis means with those uh, behavioral issues and put in strategies that will help to address those issues and analyze which strategies are working. So and this is a big piece of work. So if you've got a young person who's 
whose behaviour is showing that they are unhappy, that they're they're having they're having difficulties. Talk to other people that have that young person in their lessons who have connections with that young person and come up with some strategies that will work within your setting. Use those strategies, but analyse those strategies, because sometimes you think you're onto a good thing and actually it's not helping. Um, I had a young person with um, whose behaviour was extreme. Um, it turned out to be a trauma a mixture of trauma, um, ADHD, and he was also autistic. But the strategy there that worked was music. So we found that by trial and error and talking to other teachers that also had him in the class, um, and through, um, I'm a pianist, I happened to, in desperation one day, because I had a mixed class like that, I had to take him out and I played found myself playing the piano to him and noticed it had a really good effect on him and miracle upon miracle after I played it a couple of times the Moonlight Sonata I remember it as if it was yesterday he played it back to me absolutely perfectly he's an incredible musician and he loves music I'd never have found that out without experimenting so your listener needs to experiment and bring in other people, even if they're not in her class with her at the time, bring in other people's opinions. Get, Ask a colleague to come in and observe the class and see if they can pick up on anything that they they could help you to put in as an intervention, um, mm. especially with the behaviour ones. Because with that young person, once we found that the answer was music, he then had an iPod um, in his when he was in class with me and we had an agreement that I would set the work and that he would put his iPod on and listen to his music um, if he was starting to feel anxious or his behaviour was starting to escalate and it was a way of and we had a, a sort of secret sign which was me telling him I'm noticing that you're escalating up that your behaviour is mm. becoming more challenging put your music on didn't always work but it's finding those key key things that you can use to help to inter, intervene into particular situations but that's not easy not in a class with quite so many uh, young people with such differing needs i would ask your colleagues to come in and have a look yeah. and offer some suggestions obviously you've got all the as you you said rightly sam yourself um differentiating the work um is 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 not easy in itself but when you add behavior into that it becomes much uh, even even more trickier situation hope i've helped out a little bit there but I, it's not a that's not an easy one <clears throat> yeah absolutely that there's not a panacea no there's it's it's but find, finding what they really engage with I, I remember i had a detention once with one of the students and i just got talking to this student and mm -hmm. Turns out it was big into mountain biking. Now, for me as a geography teacher, that was great because it then meant next lesson I could go into, oh, here's, here's a U-shaped valley. Do you fancy cycling down that? Yes, of course. I found a video of somebody doing exactly that. And so it was just a little way of just incorporating his interests into the lesson and getting him to engage with that physical landscape around him. Mm. Um, I had an, actually a really nice tip from my university mentor as well, particularly with... Um, visually impaired students, VI students, 
on on things like PowerPoint, you can um, if you set a if you use the um, Microsoft style settings, you can mm. set it as a title style. And it means when the screen when they're using a screen reader to read out the text on the page, it will actually read out title physical geography of Wales or whatever the title mm. happens to be. So it can be really helpful for them to just orient themselves around the page if you're using mm. a PowerPoint or a worksheet or something like that. But no, it is it is challenging, isn't it, when you've got lo- loads of different needs. But yeah, it's getting it's asking your colleagues, isn't it, consulting EHCPs and... Know um, the triggers, know the EHCPs, speak to your colleagues, somebody you might not understand or you might not have found out that, that child likes mountain biking but somebody else might have done and you can then incorporate that into your lesson as you say it's finding the vehicle that inspires the young person to want to engage if you get them hooked then then that's that that's really the answer to the question even with the behavioral <clears throat> excuse me behavioral issues it's finding the hook that will help the young person to engage with you and therefore engage with the lesson that you have planned but you're going to have to be clever with it Mm. So I'm conscious of the time and I want to get through our last couple of questions. So I think this is a really interesting one to talk about before the end of the show. So I was just wondering, how do your schools work with external organisations like CAMS um, when dealing with students who have SEMH needs? And I also wanted to know, how do you actually get a job in a specialist school if you've only ever worked in a mainstream sort of setting? Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> so there's a couple of points there. If you've ever yeah. dealt with cams, have fun with that. How and also, how do you get a job? Um, where should we start I mean, with the working, external agencies? <laughs> working with outside agencies. I mean, obviously, in a specialist setting, we're working with all sorts of uh, different um, external providers, uh, whether that be therapists or whether that be cams. Um, it may actually be doctors. It may be, you know, and and that there's a it's a network of people that surround each individual child. We've got social workers, um, care services, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's a very complex um, um, mix, and it's a very complex network. But we're very well versed to working with them within a specialist setting. And obviously, our SENCOs, um, we, have, we have in-house, um, uh, we have in-house therapists, we have in-house uh, social workers who have who know the systems inside out so in that way it's 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 a little bit more of a easier um, ask than it is in the mainstream where you might not have quite such a um, huge network of people but then as I said in a previous um, podcast when I spoke to you I think as I came on as a um, I I was just interested and I came on as a listener asking you a question um, you know, use your special needs schools as well. Ask them for some advice. If you've got a particular issue and you want uh, some extra advice, it's our special specialist schools have an awful lot of in-house expertise which you can tap into. In terms of actually getting a job, um, there is no reason why you you couldn't get a job in a in a specialist provision, uh, having come from mainstream. I did that. And a lot of colleagues that I work with have done that. And it can be quite invaluable, actually, having that um, mainstream experience, but bringing that your mainstream experience into a specialist setting. But there's an awful lot of extra work that you're going to have to do uh, to become au fait with what you're 
um, embarking on. I would suggest very strongly that you go and do a couple of um, uh, placements, uh, perhaps have a have a, an opportunity to go and work, maybe just observe um, in a, a in a specialist setting because it is a very different way of working. It may suit you, it may not suit you. So do your homework quite carefully. Um, work have a have a look at um what it means to have a, some of these diagnoses that we deal with on an everyday basis what does it mean to be autistic what does it mean to be adhd you may have had a lot of experience within your mainstream setting but do your homework and explore further um there's a, there's a numerous numbers of um organizations that offer training in various areas of um, special needs education. Um, Macton, what is Macton? That's a sign language that we quite often use. It's a visual, it can be a visual language and it's also signing language, which helps to develop young people's speech. Have a little look mm. at that, find out, do some homework on, on that. But there's nothing stopping you for applying for a job in a specialist provision. But what I would say to you is if you're really interested in that, find out about what it means to work in, in, in a specialist provision because it is very different. Yeah. For some young some people it, it, it works extremely well. For other people, it's just not for them. And I have no um if it's not for you, it's not for you. I think uh, that's a really good point. It's mm. it's um I because I, I, I I, I worked in a sort of an SEMH setting for a while. And you know, as we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, when you were on the, the show as a, as a you called in, actually the school I was at is, is part of a larger multi-academy trust. So if you're in one of those mainstream schools, actually you've got another school in your network that you can visit and have a look at. But one of the school I was part at, it preferred to have teachers in, first of all, as, a, um, as, as agency workers, Mm-hmm. Um, because we found that there were agency workers that came in for a day or two, maybe a week, and then just thought, nah, not for me. Not for me. <laughs> and, and, and didn't come back again. And actually, from the school's perspective, that was quite a good thing because that was basically your interview um, there is, is because these are challenging settings. And if you're not um, prepared to go through some of the challenges that these settings provide, then then you know, you're going to struggle working there full time. But um, I should also clarify CAMS, another acronym, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, all these external agencies that um, you become very familiar with when you work in SEMH and send those alternative settings. There is, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? But uh, absolutely, I think what you're saying about seeking out um Training, you can do this in your own time, whether it's studying at Makaton, particularly for younger students who um, use that to communicate and supplement their sort of verbal communication. Um, maybe looking at going to visit schools, a placement, doing some agency work there. There's lots of options, aren't there? More, more than happy. Um, you will find that uh, specialist provisions, I work for a company called TCES. That's T-C-E-S. Um, uh, we'd be more than happy to show you around one of our schools, um, let you have a, um, you know, a talk to you about what it means to work in one of our specialist provisions. And we wouldn't be the only ones. There are other organisations, there are other um, specialist provisions who we want people, we want good people to come and join us. I don't want anybody to be put off joining us. 
It's a hugely rewarding job if it's for you. It's a tough job. It's a very tough job. But um, it's, you know, you're talking about young people that sometimes have been written off. And yet, with the right specialist provision, you can see them being young leaders. You can see them taking up positions in universities. You can see them working. In fact, some of the young people who have gone through some of the classes that I've, I've taught in the past, you know, you wouldn't know that they have been through a specialist provision. Mm. And yet when they first arrived in that specialist provision, you would question whether they would ever be able to hold their own in the outside world. But they are. And it's because they get the right help, the right support, they learn to, um, they have the right toolbox to access so that they can actually make sense of the world around them. And then, you know, they can they can be massively huge achievers and do extremely well. So it's it's tough because whilst you're going through that process, it can be um, uh, it can be incredibly uh, challenging at times. But the the reward is seeing a young person taking their rightful place in the world and doing so incredibly well. Um, and knowing that you were a part of that journey. That's so really... I would say to your, your listener, do consider uh, special educational needs. Do your homework. There's good opportunities quite often. If you want to run, run alongside a mainstream job, why not uh, work in a, um, a school that is also a children's home? Uh, there are several residential specialist schools. They look for um, residential staff who can do the odd evening shift working with young people with special educational needs that's a very good way of sizing up whether this is for you and obviously quite often teachers go and work in residential in the evening so you can have a good chat to them whilst you're helping the young people in the evenings so there's a million ways in which to to to, to find out more but do your homework mm, absolutely um we're going to take a quick break now while we hear from our sponsors This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. 
New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as Tech User Labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BED, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BED 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Welcome back to the show. We've been talking about lots of different issues to do with SEND and SEMH. We had a nice uh, conversation just now about how to get a job and to get experience working in these areas. And I'd say for me, having worked in SEMH before, it's taught me an awful lot of that um, I've taken now into a mainstream setting. Um, and it's, it's definitely something I don't regret doing. So um, we've got about five minutes left on the show. So and I wanted to make sure we get through all of our um, questions today. So we've got another question here that will be a situation that will be familiar to a lot of teachers. So I've got a student in one of my classes who has autism and ADHD. Um, with that, as you probably know, he really struggles to sit still. Um, so to help with that, we did give him a card for movement breaks. So he uses that once uh, per lesson. Problem is, he's often gone longer than the five minutes that he's allowed. And when he comes back into the classroom, he still seems a bit unsettled and sometimes disruptive to the class. So the movement break doesn't really seem to have accomplished much. Do you have any suggestions with how to deal with that? Things that I could do better in that case? Yeah, so movement breaks, things for students like with um, issues like ADHD can be really useful, but also prone to perhaps being abused and taken advantage of and perhaps not even effective. So um, so we've not got too long left on the show. So, But what would your advice be to that? I think, first of all, um, obviously make sure... Um, have a good dialogue with parents or um, carers that he's actually taking his medication um, because obviously if he is if he is medicated and he's not taking his medication there might be uh, an issue there that needs exploring um, if he's not on medication then obviously that 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 isn't the case um, I would say that movement breaks are essential for a, a young person with ADHD but I think they've got to be structured in a way that works for them it may be that he or she needs fewer uh, movement breaks but for longer or it may be that they need um, quicker movement breaks but for for less so they're they're going in and out a bit more often which is a little bit more disrupting for the, the lesson I understand that but at the same time if it's going to have the effect that he actually can concentrate in between and take take things in bite-sized chunks I think with ADHD is quite often you um, as I say lessons dividing your lessons up into smaller chunks with an activity a physical activity in between can work better than having longer chunks um, with a, a, a with a break so experiment with um, the length of break um, I'm presuming this young person is going out and having 
this movement activity on their own or are they going with a TA? If they're going with a TA, then it's a question of asking the TA, so what is the problem in him, him or her coming back on time? Is it that they're refusing to come back on time or is it in fact that uh, the game is, is, is so much more exciting that that perhaps the, the TA themselves is getting um, carried away with it and, and, and feels that perhaps it's it would be better for them to take a little bit more time. There's also movement and movement. So some movement breaks are um, can help to escalate a child's um, um, symptoms. Movement breaks are not all equal. So for, for one learner that I used, uh, I had, if you took him on the trampoline, for instance, for a five minute uh, movement break, that would actually escalate him up. Whereas if you took him for a walk for five minutes, that brought him down. So it may be looking at one timing, is the TA uh, allowing him to have more uh, of a movement break because they feel it's more useful to them? Um, or is the young person themselves refusing to come in? Explore that a little bit, but also then look at the, the type of movement break that you're, you're exposing them to. So what are they doing in that uh, movement break? Once again, break it down. Um, have different sorts of activities in those movement breaks and then analyse what the reaction is of the child afterwards. Because as I say, some movement break, some movement exercises can be escalating for some learners and some calming. So it's a question of having a look and mixing it up a little bit. Don't always do the same activity. Yeah, really good advice. I think... Um... Yeah, not things that don't uh, escalate and perhaps even exacerbates those issues. Definitely, really good. I think some something is just as simple as a walk around the block, a mm. school block that is, or maybe just going outside and a bit of fresh air on the field can be really sort of a, a powerful thing just to calm and reset. But and no, interesting. Oh, sorry, and a learner can quite often say to you, "I'm finding this really helpful. I think I need to do it more." And that's very easy to think, well, yes, I'm helping, I'm helping them. There, there is obviously young people are very good at, uh, at sometimes task avoidance. So there's a little element of that maybe coming into this situation. We don't, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's exploring all of those avenues. And of course you can do movement breaks in the classroom. And there's yeah. no reason why a small movement break, a stretch, stretches and things like that can't be done by the whole class in fact sometimes that can be very useful I've done it with a whole mainstream class it was targeted at one particular learner in particular but actually just standing up and doing a few uh, stretches before setting set, settling down and getting on with the task can work for everybody in ter terms of uh, re readjusting focus but in particular help um, that, that youngster. So experiment a little bit because there actually may be some in-class, not massively huge exercises, but a few stretches that that young person can do, which helps to regulate them without having the need to go out. Absolutely, really good advice. That's something we did quite a lot when I worked as a TA in a year six class, is even a mainstream setting, but actually having stretches or a little bit of um, uh, running on the spot just for a little bit, even... Um, but I, I do this in one of my 
um, geography classes with which have a few challenging students is I quite often incorporate carousel activities. The students mm-hmm. are getting up, going around the room at different stations, and that is movement. And it does, <laughs> I find that works really well, particularly for that class. Anyway, we've um, run out of time for today. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge with us. And thank you, everybody who's listened. Um, It's been really interesting talking to you. And we had SJ Shepherd on earlier today. So we're going to close out now. And I hope you have a lovely rest of your weekend. Keep hitting the vitamin C. Yeah, hope you feel better as well soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.